Hello everyone, Sam here, and welcome to a very special mini-series of the Pint of Science podcast, all about some of the incredible work being done around stem cell technologies. This is our second episode being made in collaboration with BitBio, a company on the cutting edge of mass-producing human cells for medical therapeutic use. Dr. Paul Murill is the company's chief business officer. He's a biochemist with a PhD from Cambridge University and an entrepreneur with a 30-year career at the cutting edge of stem cell technology. So what inspires a Californian surfer to go from looking at a career in music to studying genomes and the very scores that make us tick? And of course, looking at ways to rewrite that score to advance medical science. Well, he's joining us today, so pull a drink of your choice and let's find out. I mean, we had a quick a quick chat just to uh, say hello to each other a couple of days ago, and I know from that chat that you are you're a surfer, you're a skier, you're a collector of, of fine guitars. <laughs> that doesn't tally with people's kind of first impressions of a scientist. So, what's your story? It's a, it's a very good question, Sam, and it's. Uh... One, it's a product of where I grew up. California, especially Southern California, um, is a very unique place. I think people would agree both for its uh, craziness, but equally, you know, I grew up on the water. I grew up uh, minutes from the beach, but I could jump in a car and within three hours I could be skiing. Uh, Technically, you could do it in the same day. I can't say that I actually have done that, but I certainly have done it in the same vacation. And so growing up, you know, I didn't know anything different. Uh, It was a natural state of affairs. Um, And then naturally, when you sit on the water, you know, you have a lot of time to think. You you see things. It it spurs your mind. And I think uh, one of the early memories for me, and I think you and I even talked about it a little bit before, was both spurred on by what I saw in the water, you know, with uh, whales migrating uh, every season. And, and, and just seeing that whole thing play out and, and, and you start developing, even at an early age, you don't quite enunciate it to yourself, but you start developing uh, why, you know, and if I, could, if I could actually frame most of my experiences in my early childhood, it was this real impetus to try to understand why things were. And then once you start getting into the whys, what naturally follows is the how. And I think those two drivers really spurred me into the direction of science, although I could never have told you when I was a kid, even up to the time I was maybe 15 years old, that I would have ever become a scientist. It was those two questions that really pushed me along my way. What did you want to do before you suddenly found that you wanted to be a scientist? And was there like some, I mean, you read because it's a terrible <laughs> cliche phrase, but was there, a, <laughs> was there a moment where you thought, oh, Science. Well, um, now I, I will tell you that what I thought and who I thought I was going to be was a professional musician. Um, uh, music played a massive role in my life, uh, really symphonic music. Um, it was central to almost everything I did. Um, I was part of a youth orchestra. Um, I did a lot of touring throughout the world when I was a child. And so actually in my early childhood, I always kind of thought it was going to be music that was going to really be my career. And it was really when I got into my middle teens that things started to evolve and change because my horizons broadened, my interests broadened. And there was quite a pivotal thing that happened in my life. And I think 
for most kids of my age back then, I don't want to date myself too badly, but you come out of the 60s and early 70s, um, the state of cancer and cancer therapies and the state of the art back then wasn't great. And most of us uh, probably had family members, especially grandparents, that as they got older, they were afflicted with that catch-all word, which was called cancer. And I think losing my grandfather to it, I was very close to him. Um, it really, and if, if I go back to those central questions of the why and the how, you know, why did he get this? Why does cancer kill people? And then you get into the how, 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 how does it actually go about killing? What is it? Um, that actually started changing what I thought I might pursue, because I think when you follow a musical path, definitely by your late teens, you have to kind of choose, are you going to kind of go the Juilliard's route and, and push yourself down that career, which is very much uh, a fulfilling career, but you're not going to be going back and doing any kind of science or mathematics or, or doing anything along those lines. So in a sense, at that age, I wanted to keep my options open. And I felt I had a lot of un, um, I didn't have good answers to questions I was still asking, and I felt that I needed to broaden my horizons more than they were at the time. Well, you talk about music as a as a career, and, and now you work in genomics. You can correct me if I'm wrong. It's really clunky, possibly. But there's kind of, in my head, there's a sort of similarity there between, you know, you read the music on a score, and you can tell from what you're seeing what's going to happen next, what's coming next, what the emotion's going to be, what the result of that's going to be. And then when you look at, Genes. It's almost. It look. It kind of feels like a musical score to me as a complete layman. Is that nonsense, or is is there a kind no, of poetic crossover I, I there? Actually, I, I actually don't think it is nonsense. And actually, you're not far off the mark. I, I, perversely, there's a lot of scientists and mathematicians that are actually very good musicians, and mm. the two are linked with the type and the parts of the brain that is being used. And I think it's kind of proven out. It, it, you know, if I look at a lot of colleagues I've worked with in the past and equally a lot of great musicians I've had the pleasure of either playing with or knowing, all of them had this, these other interests in really more uh, scientific mathematical pursuits if they were actually professional musicians. And I think you find that crossover uh, quite a lot within music. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's interesting. Um, I don't believe that's anecdotal, I, I, but I think that sort of comparison you made, um, I've never really enunciated to myself like that, but I think it's actually quite interesting and probably not far off the mark. I feel better now. I don't feel like I've said something stupid. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, it, it, it is interesting because it's not something I naturally would have thought of uh, back in the day, but as I've grown older and my kids have gotten into music and I've kind of come back to it, as more of a hobby, but definitely a creative outlet. You, you just meet people, especially uh, scientists, and they all, so many of them are fantastic musicians, and I mean accomplished musicians. Mm. And that's not a mistake. I'm thinking, okay, this isn't just an N of one. I've, I've met a lot of people that were concert pianists. I mean, very high standard, higher standard than uh, what I got to um, at my age. They're passionate about pursuing their science, but they still have this massive creative outlet in music. Yeah. And I can see a lot of potential crossovers there in kind of, you know, attention to detail and, you know, experimental science and scientific methodology. But I want to go back 
quickly because you talked about cancer and I think it was your granddad who got cancer. Yes, is that right? That's right. That's correct. And that led you, because you mentioned whales and whale spotting and the whale migration as well. There's a crossover there, isn't there? Because I, you were telling me the other day that whales don't get cancer. There is a crossover and it serendipitous, but you know, it's funny how sort of early forming things that you hear or habits that you develop guide and drive so much of what you do in your life that you're not necessarily consciously aware of. You, you, you probably, I, I certainly did in my early years, even view it as a, a guiding thing. I knew I had this very deep why and how, you know, as a three and four year old kid, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. And like I said, I was very close to my grandfather, but I have this burning remembrance of this saying that my grandmother said all the time to me. Now, as a kid back in California in the 60s, it was called Kool-Aid or Coke. That's what every kid wanted. And so every day I'd ask for, can I have some Kool-Aid, Graham, or can I have some Coke? And she said, and she was from Scotland, and she'd be a nigh laddie, uh, drink water, it makes the elephant strong. Now, that's funny. As a kid, it's not funny because you're not getting what you want. And I probably heard that expression, my God, thousands of times. I mean, thousands of times I heard that. And I'll, I'll never forget, you know, you'd go to the zoo and you'd see these majestic animals. And then I started asking myself, well, is this true? You know, is, is, is Nan actually saying something that's true to me? And I remember it was like seven or eight years old. And I started, and it, and it was that early beginning of saying, why? Why, do I, why, do I, why does water make the elephant strong? And then you naturally go to how? How does it make him strong? And, and then you have this crossover point with the whales. They're both very large, uh, very large mammals. They, they, they do incredible things. They have incredible size. And then you start investigating aspects to these to these creatures. And, you know, back then, obviously, there wasn't the knowledge base relating to cancer. But definitely, you know, elephants were, you know, they're 40 to 50 times larger than human beings. And they can give birth well into their 60s. I mean, it's incredible. It's insane, um, isn't it? That, that, that level of fitness... Uh, to be able to do that, these matriarchs going around at 60 years old, perfectly able to carry children for, I think, the gestation period's almost two years. Uh, it, it's a long time. Um, mm. and, and, and give birth uh, at those ages. And whales are similar. They, they give birth well into their, well, I mean, uh, some of these whales, the, the, the really large ones, the blue whales, I know can live potentially up to 200 years old, obviously, if they're not being farmed or whaled. Um, and, and, and so it was really studying and evolving with the nature because I was surfing, I was always in the water and you would, you know, you had plenty of time to contemplate waiting for waves. And then this sort of underlying thing that was happening when I was a child with elephants. And I, I know that those early developments and these questions I was asking kind of started driving me down the scientific path. And then this thing that happened with my grandfather at 13, 14 years old caused me to really question, what do I want to do as I get older? And what, what options do I want to explore? And just to come full circle on this story before we move on, I'll never forget, I'm sitting in a conference years ago, um, 
And uh, somebody was giving a talk and, you know, I had obviously pursued the career I did and I went into science and then, you know, decided, yep, I haven't learned enough. I want to go back to school. I ended up in Cambridge here in the UK. I was supposed to be here three years. It was it's 25 years now. <laughs> but at this conference, uh, somebody gave this lecture and, um, you know, obviously it, it, it's now known that elephants don't die of cancer. Um, they have... Um, numerous copies of particular genes that are DNA that are implicated in uh, repair mechanisms that allow cells to repair themselves when there's slight little mistakes that cells make when they replicate themselves. And wouldn't you know it, whales have the same thing. They're a thousand times more, they have a thousand X increase in being able to su suppress cancer-causing situations within the cell. And I just thought, you know, when you have one of those moments in your life and it just kind of comes full circle and then you have a chance to kind of retrospectively look how you ended up where you did, I can honestly say in that lecture, I have one of those moments and thinking, gosh, all those years ago in the 60s, my grandma saying that kind of thing to me, she couldn't possibly have known all this, no. but she had, she had, who knows, passed down or, you know, old folklore tales, this kind of thing that made sense to everybody. And then lo and behold, it turns out, my gosh, she was more correct and more prescient in her viewpoints on this than she could have possibly known. And look how it shaped my life and where I ended up. This couldn't, it isn't just pure serendipity or by mistake. You know, it was a full circle moment for me. And you just kind of shake your head. And you just think, well, through it all, I ended up in the place I, I, I really should have been. That's amazing. I mean, this might be a silly question. You know, elephants, whales, humans, we're all mammals, but that's probably close to where it ends. Is there anything that we can learn in cancer treatments from uh, the genetics of whales and elephants and examining uh, those? Definitely. I mean, uh, I think if you... If you look at where the science is now and how we're starting to develop models and develop science to be able to study how these uh, various evolutions have happened in each one of these mammals and how we could, where are the natural crossover points? It's one of the central cores of what BitBio is trying to do as well, you know, where we're trying to develop or develop the underlying technologies and the basis by which we can uh, create or the ambition to create every human cell type, a primary cell type in the human body, and to be able to do that reproducibly and consistently. Because can you imagine, Sam, if you have that capability of creating these cell types and these, these models that vary, if not exactly mimic the biology within the human being itself. So it's as close as you can get without being in the human body. And even as these sort of printing technologies and various things to develop organoids, that means, you know, developing an organ made up of several different cell types that functions as a whole organ, you have all this context and information that you can start asking highly relevant questions from your model and hopefully get answers and data back that inform even more relevant questions. So I think, you know, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, we'll be having a very different conversation about the ability for us to 
develop cell therapies, which BitBio is working on using this knowledge base and help these cell therapies actually overcome many of these types of cancer uh, diseases that are afflicting us now by studying nature itself and tweaking the human genome or tweaking the, the way we can develop these cell therapies in a way to really move the needle in cancer, um, cancer healthcare. So hopefully turn it into potentially a, a, a less acute uh, you know, death disease and be more prognostic about it and being able to develop therapies that could either correct underlying issues or actually suppress some of the issues as we age naturally and start picking up all these various mutations to correct some of those errors in that mutation. And then equally, if you get a disease, to be able to actually go in and fix the disease at source. That's fascinating. It's so exciting. It's so exciting. You're kind of developing a a human spares garage, aren't you, for each individual? <laughs> well, it, it's a good way of putting it. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's definitely some of the ambition, you know, all these companies that are in this space are hugely ambitious. Um, and I think, you know, uh, cell therapy, uh, IPSC, IPSC differentiation, these are all technologies that are all vitally important to the future of medicines. And it's really a question of trying to understand the context and the disease within, as you said, the correct spares model, but the correct context where you really try to mimic and have the context of human biology itself as close as you can get as if, as if it was the human being itself. Because then you can really start pushing the envelope of the types of questions you can ask from your system and the type of data you can generate. And you talked there about, was it I IPFC? Differentiation? IPSC. This, IPSC differentiation. Is, what is that? So this is the ability to take a pluripotent stem cell you're able to. So that's something put, that could be a sense. The pluripotent could be. It's got the potential to be any kind of anything, cell. any yeah. kind of cell. And 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 what you do is you have this cell that could be any type of cell, and you're able to put an intelligent code into that cell and say, "I would like you to become a neuron now." Now that just doesn't happen willy nilly. You have to know, and it, they're called transcription factors. It's the way we go about it. There's a combination of these factors that you can put that tell the cell to do this at this time, do that at that time, do this now um, at this time, and push it to become that neuron cell. Equally, I could put in a, a slightly different code into that cell and say, I would like you to be a muscle cell now. So, you know, it was thought historically that there was maybe, um, you know, 200-ish cell types in the human body, I think people now know it's a, it's a much larger number than that. There's several different sub-cell types. And then if, if we look at that in conjunction with the, this, 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 these codes, and they're called transcription factors, that universe is right now known to be about 2,000. So wow. it's a question of picking the right, the right combinations of these codes into the cell in a way that each cell, when it gets this code, knows it's now time for me to become a neuron. So to be able to do that, imagine 
scalably and reproducibly with the consistency that every cell gets the same code at the same time and becomes the neuron it needs to be really allows you now to ask better questions from the system because you have something there that's representative. You can reproduce it. And now once you get answers from that system, you can recreate that system over again with the exact same starting point and ask further questions. That's a, it's a hugely powerful place to be because then it allows you to get reproducible data and, and then ask different questions once you understand the basis of that data. Well, firstly, it's, it's a really exciting place because it sounds like it's right on the cusp of, of something absolutely incredible. But also, it must have been such an exciting career for you to have had because you've been a scientist basically, uh, not, to, not to give too much, too much away. <laughs> oh, <here we> go. <laughs> but you've been no, a scientist no. for most of the yes. time that, that kind of stem cells have been in the scientific eye. Yes, that is correct. So that must have been quite a journey. <laughs> from Yeah, I mean, I here. haven't personally been uh, in just the stem cell field. I really started out, you know, it evolved. I started in diagnostics, then I moved slowly into the early stages of small molecule drug discovery. Um, and then from there, started really moving into genomic-based engineering. So, you know, you hear a lot of this thing on CRISPR. Well, this was the really early days, even before CRISPR, when we used um, a different type of technology, similar but different, to go in and manipulate genomes and actually start developing, again, these models, uh, you know, as, as imperfect as they were then, but models that we could take the, the normal state of the cell and add a different set of mutations to let it mimic some type of uh, a model of cancer. And we did that in a reproducible and scale, scalable way, but it was still, gosh, in the, in the grand scheme of things, light years away of what iPSCs could deliver as a potential technology because it's so much closer to, to mimicking relevant uh, human disease biology in a very uh, contextual way. So it's a natural evolution and IPSCs, you know, where they started, it was, you know, uh, fascinating. I, I, I think overall, um, and everybody would agree in its early days, it, it, it didn't really deliver all of its promise. And that was, not the stem cells issue, is that it was the question of being able to make enough of something or to be able to extract it, you know, and that's really been probably the last 10 to 15 years where the industry has really put a lot of time and energy in developing technologies to be able to reproducibly make these differentiated stem cells. And this is where BitBio is really combining all the aspects on the stem cell side with the programming, with, you know, mathematics and, and really the synthetic biology aspect where we bring data and, and mathematics and algorithms, combine it with biology. The, the, the ambition is to make every human cell type in the, in the human atlas. Amazing. Possibly too wide a question. I was going to ask what are the, what are the scientific implications of this, but let me narrow that down because we could be here for a very long time. If I ask that question, because I know that you were talking about drug discovery in particular, the first question for background is how does drug discovery traditionally work? 
And then how do we get from that to what you guys are doing with Bitbiome and, and what you're doing yourself? Uh, I'll, I'll just talk about that at a, at, a, at a very high level. You know, traditionally, drug discovery was, you know, focused in small molecules and organic-based molecules or derivations of organic and inorganic chemistry would come and make these small molecules. They weren't protein in size. They weren't protein-based. They were you know, drug brace like aspirin, okay? And, and you can't escape one very clear fact. You got to understand biology first. What are you trying or what, you know, there's some fantastic uh, serendipitous discoveries that were made throughout the uh, course of drug discovery, but it was all based yeah. on good science, uh, sound medicinal chemistry, organic chemistry, some incredibly brilliant people that worked over years of their lives to create mm. a whole host of these drugs in a very sort of brute force but elegant way in terms of trying to understand the disease and the biology, the signaling pathways within cells, and then recapitulating how to affect a change in that signaling pathway to affect a change, obviously, in the health of the human being. We then moved into what was called high-throughput screening. And the thing with high-throughput screening, what, what that really means is we, we, we took representative cells. They were models that, while imperfect, it was the best we could do at the time. And what we, were, what we tried to do is then ask questions out of these systems on an incredibly large scale and screen millions of different chemical compounds. So these little identities, we would try to put millions of them against a particular problem and see what combinations popped up as having an effect within that system. So it's mud, mud at a wall, very much mud at a wall. And yeah, well, <laughs> it was a little it. bit, no, it was a little bit better than that because <laughs> it, it was predicated on, 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 on deep knowledge of the biology or as deep a knowledge as we had. And, you know, in some incredible scientists and, and people worked on this for years. The models weren't perfect, but they were still representative of the best we could do. But if I can give like a, I think almost a musical analogy, if you think of the model back then in the early days of HTS, think of a symphony, a standard symphony, but instead of the violins being your standard repertoire of violins, the violins were represented within a standard symphony. Let's say it would have been 10,000 violins. Okay. And that those 10,000 violins represented the part of the biology we were trying to study. But it was so amplified that, yes, we could see that particular thing. So just like if you were to go to listen to a, a symphony concert but represented with, you know, a standard orchestra, but then 10,000 violins, you're going to hear the violins. Above <laughs> yeah. and beyond everybody yeah, yeah. else. The piccolos, the flutes, and the oboes, not so much, right? Um, and so what happens is we were able to see the particular pathway we're we were looking at. So the violins, we could hear the violins. We could see the disease or the pathway, the signaling pathway. But the context was completely out of whack and has been completely out of whack. That's called an overexpression model. So... It was the best we could do. We had we, we learned a, hell, a heck of a lot about biology then, 
But the drive is to get the context right. So basically, the violins come back down to a normal repertoire of violins. It's working in concert with all the other instruments. So you, we're, we're trying to be able to, to study now that disease pathway, but in context at its normal level. So we can actually then see the interplay with all the different instruments as in a cell with all the different pathways implicated within that disease. So this okay. is where the stem cells come in and the, uh, and the IPSCs differentiated. They're representing now the orchestra that's more in line with what the whole context is correct. So it's much closer to what you would see in the human being, in the context of the cell within the human body. And so our drive is to get the context of the biology correct so that you can study it within the whole context of how it should be performing within the, the particular disease state that it's in. And that's very important. And there's one other extremely important nuance that we're able to do. You know, stem cells and differentiated stem cells, like I said, this consistency and reproducibility it's, it's a difficult one. It's a huge challenge in this area because what you want to be able to do is run an experiment 15 times. And if the biology is robust and the cells, you're able to, to make them again and again and again consistently, you're gonna, you should get the same answer or close to it. You don't want wildly different answers because you can't rely on the data sets. So BitBio's work, and it is working extremely hard that however many times we make a new batch of the cells of the same cell type, it's the exact same thing every time. And the biology is replicated and duplicated so that you can run the same experiment and get the same data set. So you have high confidence in that data set. It's extremely important, Sam, because for HTS to work, you have to believe that the data you're producing is absolutely reproducible and representative of the biology you're trying to study. And that's where we're putting a tremendous amount of work because it's another piece of the puzzle that BitBio is trying to solve in conjunction with that puzzle being as much about the platforms we're producing, but more importantly along the way, the cell therapies that we're going to produce with these cell types. So those that same cell type that we're, that we're at the top end producing hopefully a new uh, cure for humans is the same cell that can then be put into a system to allow better studying of the disease itself to further cures in other areas. Fantastic. Sorry, uh, you might be able to hear behind me. There's a digger just started up. That is very unhelpful. <laughs> it's a live, live podcast recording. I, I, actually, uh, <laughs> I, can't, I actually can't. I actually can't hear it. <laughs> well, I, I fear that the audience might be able to. So apologies, audience, if you're listening to this and you can hear a, a little digger rolling past outside. Is, we're kind of talking about the orchestra there. That's fascinating, isn't it? You kind of traditionally consider, okay, you put uh, X bacteria in a dish, you put X drug on it, the bacteria dies. But, and that's, that's what you're talking about with the, you know, the 10,000 violins. You've got all this happening and you can visualize it, but you don't know what else is happening around it. You don't know what's going to happen if you put that in. A human liver, for example. Yeah, yeah, so you just don't know within a cell itself if you're studying a very particular thing and it's so represented in that mm. cell that it just drowns everything else out. 
it's hard to understand, oh, yes, this is working. But then you get it into a, a model like a, a, a more relevant, like a, a live animal model, a mouse model or something, and the whole thing falls apart. Because now you have the context of all the other biology going on around it. That's not to say that HTS can solve everything. It can't. What we're trying to strive to do is develop cells that have the properties within the nature of stem cells, iPS-derived cells themselves, that have the, the correct context and nature correct, be able to get to its cell type reproducibly, and then give data sets that actually can move the needle with an understanding of either the biology or what the next experiment should be. So what's the, again, it's going to sound like a really stupid question. What's the biggest advantage here? Are we talking mostly kind of a cost advantage? It's not about cost. I think if you develop underlying systems correctly, we are able to produce the cells at a value proposition that absolutely makes sense. I mean, that obviously is important at the end of the day because all science is first and foremost, is the data helping me? Mm. Then the question is, what's the value of the data being produced? And obviously, over years and years of HTS in, in particular, it's evolved to its kind of natural state of cost, right? People think, yeah, an HTS data point in a traditional sense is worth this to me on a per well basis. Mm. But now... With iPSCs, because the biology and context are better and they're improving all the time, that calculus will probably change. But equally, the cells themselves have to be amenable to being used within the context of HTS. Now, that's another big challenge because, remember, iPSCs, they, they, they differentiate to their cell type. They get used once and then they have to be replenished. They do not propagate, self-propagate. Their primary cells. They, 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 they have a code. They get to their end stage. They're alive for that period of time, but they don't reproduce anymore. So you do what you need, and then you have to do it over. Mm. So that reproducibility angle is extremely important. But then the value of the data that's being produced by those cells is of the utmost important because then you can derive, okay, what's it worth to anybody actually using the cell line, the cell type? And then furthermore, is that data helping us to move forward with the biology? Yeah. And I think there's going to be a game changer personally, and this is an opinion, so let me put that out there. It's my <laughs> opinion, but it's based upon being within that industry for a number of years, working across all the way from platforms, all the way through to the technology, the wet technology, the cells themselves. The, the, the day for... Um, derived IPSC cell types is coming. And I think the value proposition of what they're going to bring to the industry, both as an avatar for what's happening within the human body, but then equally being able to ask very intelligent questions from those systems is going to be game-changing over the next five years. I, uh, I, the, the industry is doing perfectly well and doing a fantastic job in the current form of HTS what we want to do is dramatically improve the context of the information and the biology that's happening. And hopefully questions that we really even can't envisage yet can be then asked once that those types of systems come online with 
these types of cells. And we're not the only ones working on this, but I think BitBio represents probably one of the forefront companies in what how we're trying to approach this in a very uh, systematic and uh, you know breadth and depth is the best way I can put mm-hmm. it. We've got breadth and depth to the ambition, and we're going full steam ahead in every one of these main categories: our cell therapies, our platforms, and then the natural segue of getting our cell types out into all the researchers' hand and really democratizing access to our cells through all levels of the drug discovery process and research process. Better cells, higher quantities, more availability is kind of the, the sum of that. And, and, and consistent, consistent. What you buy today and you, and, and you buy next year are going to be the same thing because that's also another little hidden thing, Sam. Normally, in the, in, in the early days, you know, people could get access to primary cell types. You could find it through various means. But what happens is every batch becomes a unique batch. So you have to go through a whole characterization of that batch of cells to do your experiments so you know what those cells actually represent. Imagine with the bit bio cells within a certain cell type, you do the characterization once as a lab. And because our consistency is so high, you can just order it from then on out. You don't have to recharacterize ever again. So the time and cost implication there is tremendous. And then you have data being produced throughout the course of that entire thing that you absolutely know is representative of the same cell type every single time. The only thing changing is your bio, uh, of, of what you're studying or the type of experiment you're running. That's absolutely key, isn't it? Because you need that that like perfect baseline where you know exactly what you're dealing with. Right. It's all about the perfect, yeah, the perfect baseline. And, 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 and that's what, the, the, what we're trying to bring into the realms of the cell therapy side is getting that clear, clean baseline where the state of the art is currently, you know, in, in developing sort of these, car-based technologies is actually taking a, you know, if a patient is sick, you take the patient's cells themselves, you do a bit of uh, genetic engineering, some magic there, and you put that re-engineered cell back in the body. And we actually have been able to, in that context, be able to uh, cure lymphoma with it. Mm. But really, those are patient by patient by patient. It's very brute force. Now, it's state-of-the-art. It's working extremely, it, it, it's working on numerous different patients. It's an unbelievable achievement. But we need to raise that baseline now and really bring cell therapy, using cells as a therapeutic agent, really into the forefront and create these intelligent drugs uh, with enhanced and being enhanced with synthetic biology so that. We can produce these cells, high quality, clean baseline over and over and over again for given indications. You know, that's where all I think the whole industry is trying to push towards. We know there's going to be so many baby steps in between. um, And we are part of that story now. And we're really working extremely hard to develop the breadth and depth to be able to address all these things in a very coherent, reproducible and consistent fashion, bringing all these elements together. It's hugely exciting. Cell therapy, stem cells, cell screening has been 
it's been going on a while now, and it's only just now, I guess, with companies like Bitbo starting to become reliable. Have there been any points where you just thought, this isn't going to work? <laughs> <laughs> oh, hold on. You're, you're basically talking about every scientist. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, ab- well absolutely. The crisis, yeah. <laughs> the crisis of confidence and uh, beating your head up against the wall, like, are we ever going to get through on this? And then you have these these beautiful moments of symmetry where everything happens and you take an intellectual leap. That for any company, any scientist, any group is is such an amazing moment, but it comes with so many moments where you say just that to yourself, Sam, this just isn't (laughs) going to work. Um, And you know you got to go through it. That's That's always the hard bit because after you have that, eureka moment or these sublime moments of clarity you're right back into the this isn't going to work <laughs> because you've achieved the next level now you dive yourself right back into the abyss mm. I, mean, how and does I think that- I, I have an interesting uh, I don't know if this is going to work as, a, as an <laughs> anecdote but I'm going to give it a shot go for it and, and, and it's maybe to tr- help your listeners to try I, I, I'm, I'm trying to convey I'm going to go back to the musician in the orchestra you know you, you hear this thing you know you put 10,000 hours to any real pursuit and if you have some sort of ability you're going to become pretty expert at it right mm. um, and, and, and I think you know if you think about musicians um, we all put in all these hours to become a professional musician. And as a professional, you know, you can play any song, you can create unbelievable magic in our world. You can create all these amazing platforms and technologies and self therapies, but then you need these intellectual leaps. And I think is the difference between being a professional musician, for example, and transitioning to being an artist. You know, and so even with art, you know, being able to have all the skill sets to be able to do these beautiful perspectives and copy all the masters, and then you transition into a Picasso or a Pissarro or a Michelangelo. It's it's that transition where you almost learn everything you can possibly learn. And as a company, all these people have all put the 10,000 hours in. Then we throw ourselves together and we try to work together to bring that level of competency in as a group and then almost, I, w- I don't want to say throw it away, but you know, to do that next intellectual leap, you try to forget everything, take all that knowledge and then ask that next intellectual leap in question and understanding. And I think that's where the magic happens and that's where you can start asking these questions. So when you say this just isn't going to work, that's part of that process. And then you get that intellectual leap, you know, so you put your 10,000 hours in, you are the professional, you try to forget and become the artist. Well, it's the same in science. And it's, it's, it's going in between those two zones and knowing that where, are, where am I in that zone and, and, and try to bring those nuanced understandings and intellectual leaps at every level. Um, that really propels not only the science, but, you know, the, the clear, the, the, the understanding of what do we do with all this? How do we get from here to there? And then you ask that next sort of level of, of questions, you know, think about how Einstein was thinking about physics and the state of physics back in the 1400s. Mm. You know, that's, 
that it's those types of leaps that really allow to, to propel the, the human condition forward in science. I just, I've always thought that it must take a huge amount of, of mental fortitude, I think is probably the best word, to, to deal with the inevitable failures of, of being a scientist on the cutting edge. And I guess where possibly there's a slight divergence from, from musicians and scientists here is that if you're a musician, you don't like the song you've written, you can hurl your guitar across the room, <laughs> go out, come back tomorrow and start, some, start something else. But scientists can't do that. You can't just throw down everything that you've done. And it must be so frustrating and so difficult sometimes to have to kind of steal yourself for, for months more difficulty. It's, it, it, it's, it, you have to bring a level of resilience. And, and um, well, I'll tell you personally, I became a very good uh, at wood chopping. So what I would do when I couldn't take it anymore, I'd go into my garden and I'd start chopping wood. And I became a really good wood chopper. <laughs> because you have to have an outlet for that kind of uh, frustration. But equally, you know deep down in yourself, you're going to come back to it and you're going to keep going because that's what you do. There is... You don't really have an option in it. And it's not because you don't feel you have an option. You just know it's in that pursuit where you're most happy and you got to deal with the frustrations that come with it. Yeah. I guess that's it, isn't it? It's not just, it's, it's a, a multi-part journey. It's, it's a pursuit <laughs> because you yeah. know, no matter how great your company is, you're a piece of a puzzle. You're never going to understand it all. And you know it's in that pursuit that you're getting the fulfillment, both working with your colleagues within the company, but equally with all the external collaborators, the biotech companies, the pharma companies, the researchers, that sort of fraternity of scientists, business people, and people really focused on improving patient health and patient health care. It's that pursuit is really what keeps you going. The frustrations are a natural thing in that pursuit, but you don't really have a choice. It's what you've got to do. And it's, ne it's a never-ending pursuit, isn't it? There's, there's always another problem. There's always something, something that's that opened up by every problem that yes, you solve. <laughs> absolutely. As soon as you have that level of understanding, as I said, back into the abyss you go. And that's a good abyss. I'm not saying it's a bad place to <laughs> yeah, be. Yeah, what's, what's your next abyss? What is my abyss? Oh, my gosh. Well, we're still trying to we're still trying to work through this one, and I think you know we're 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 so focused on all the aspects right now. Um, we know we're in a really intellectually stimulating and incredibly creative period, not just for BitBio but for IPSC and and cell development and cell differentiation. It's hugely inspiring just to see all the different science that's going on and it's it's also i think it's a it's a it's, it's a little bit satisfying the early promise of ipsc we everybody thought it was going to be what it's it's starting to be now it just took a little longer but we're getting there and like i said this next 10 years i think are going to be amazing i mean really it's it, it, what a time to be involved in this and 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 what a what a, what a time to, to appreciate the understanding. I mean, it's, it's got to be what the physicists felt back when Einstein came with relativity and they all thought he was bonkers. Um, but then, you know, 
how it all kind of evolved <laughs> and then Hawking's with this Hawking radiation and then how he, they, and you know, just now recently they've proved Hawking's radiation. So I think now mm. we're in that phase of really proving out the early um, ambition and the early promise of what IPSC and differentiated cell types were going to be. Now we're right in the middle of what they can become. And I think that is quite enough of an abyss to be in right now. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, there's, there's a lot to do in the next decade. It's going to be pretty full on. Absolutely. It's there. You can feel it. And, and there is that level, that hum. Um, so it makes the frustration worth it. Um, you know, you got to go through it and you know, you got to be very adaptable. You have to be willing to call yourself out on your own rhetoric and you have to know when to change course, but then the confines you've set yourself like I said, the most important thing is to be adaptable and to be open for, for the information coming in. No one group is going to do it all, but together, I think we could actually accomplish some amazing things. Yeah. I mean, the promises of new drug discoveries, treatments for cancer, therapeutic treatments for, for injuries. It's just... Well, yeah, spinal cord injuries. There's, there's, there's just unbelievable promise. And I, I, I think, Sam, for any of us, and, you know, you might have gone through it, that have has a loved one that's dealt with cancer and gone through chemo and, and, and seen, hey, chemo is the best we got for certain types of cancer right now. And there's just mm -hmm. no two ways about it. But you know it's it, it it's not great. You know, it is what it is. It's it's the best we have. But man, we can do a lot better, and we are gonna do a lot better. And I think the next day ne next decade is going to bring some of those changes, uh, considerable changes. To, to some of these therapies that are currently state-of-the-art. Thank you so much, Dr. Paul Morill. What a fascinating man and amazing work he and the BitBio team are doing. If you're interested in learning more about the company, you can find them at www.bit.bio. And do check out the first episode in this mini-series featuring their founder, Dr. Mark Cotter. Meanwhile, the Pint of Science Festival will run from the 17th to 20th of May 2021 in the UK. Find out more at pintofscience.co.uk. And if you're listening from elsewhere in the world, go to www.pintofscience.com for more information on what's happening in your country.